Welcome to NFP's Insights from the Experts podcast. Each episode showcases timely expertise and perspective from members of the NFP community, delivering information, analysis, and solutions that address our clients' most significant challenges. Hello, and welcome to the Benefits Compliance Podcast. I'm Chase Cannon. I'm joined by my colleague, Suzanne Spradley, and we are both attorneys with NFP's legal and compliance team. We're on the podcast to break down challenging issues that are in front of employers with respect to their uh, compliance efforts and their group health plans. And so today, Suzanne, we're going to tackle a political hot button, which is always challenging and um, always fun, too. Uh, but we're going to talk about the national debt and the national debt ceiling and how that impacts group health plans, U.S. markets and and government spending and government group health plans and how those are all uh, connected. And so we are going to say, stay very neutral and just focus on the facts. This is not a political podcast and we're, we're not taking sides. We're just sort of talking about what is out there and, and the impact. So obviously a very timely topic and important to discuss. And uh, we're hearing a lot about it in the news, but give us some background first, Suzanne, on what is what is federal debt? So the U.S. government has run a deficit averaging nearly $1 trillion every year since 2001, meaning that it spends much more money than it receives in taxes and other revenue. And so to make up for that difference, it has to borrow to continue to finance payments that Congress has already authorized. Um, so when the policymakers authorize spending, and they do that through that appropriations pr- process and, and other ways, And when it exceeds the government's revenue, they have to finance that shortfall or that deficit. And the Treasury does this by issuing securities to the private sector, like Treasury bonds and bills and notes and so forth. So when we talk about the national debt, it's the accumulation of this borrowing along with the associated interest rate that's owed to the investors who purchase those securities. So, you know, I think of it similar to a person using a credit card and not paying the full balance each month. Right. So we can all throw ourselves back to our first credit card and the first time we thought that it was a limitless spending and we went over that that limit, right? So um, and we weren't able to pay the full balance perhaps. Uh, but let's let's talk a little bit about the debt limit now. What, what does that mean to have a debt limit? We always like to throw in a bit of history, but the first federal debt limit can be traced back to 1939 when Congress put limits on certain forms of debt. And for context, that original debt limit was 45 billion with a B, which still sounds huge to me for the 1930s. But you contrast that with today in 2023, the national debt in January and the debt ceiling both stood at 31.4 trillion with a T. So um, I mentioned the national debt in the form of the treasury bills but Treasury also owes money to other parts of the government, like Social Security Fund. And so the debts, these debts are known as intragovernmental debt. When we talk about the debt limit, it applies to both those Treasury securities and the intragovernmental debt. Um, But what we've seen in our nation is the Treasury Department has repeatedly run into this debt limit. So this is a congressionally mandated limit on borrowing, which is interesting because Congress also uh, mandates the spending. 
Um, but the, the borrowing limit is also known as the debt ceiling, of course, is what we hear about so much in the news. And again, you know, I think of this as a person hitting their spending limit on credit cards and they're unable to obtain any more credit. And so that limit restricts the total amount of money that the Treasury Department can borrow, you know, at, at any given time. Right. So I, I like the credit card comparisons because it brings back to our level, right? We can understand that debt limit is is sort of your credit limit. You can't get any more uh, credit. Um, so like a lot of Americans, it seems the government cannot really live within its means here. And so uh, when we get to this debate, though, asking Congress to raise the debt ceiling uh, and that debate about whether we should, we shouldn't, are, are we really just taking on more and more debt by raising that debt limit? Or is it just the credit limit that we're raising and we, we don't actually incur the debt until we decide on the spending? Well, okay, so first of all, any change to the debt ceiling requires an approval by both chambers of Congress. And so that action to raise the debt ceiling does not increase our financial commitments. Those decision to spend that money has already been made in this different type of legislative um, arrangement. But again, the debt limit sets a ceiling on the amount you can borrow to cover their prior commitments. So these are commitments that they already owe. If we were to default on that debt, it would call into question the full faith and credit of the U.S. And there's a real danger in the resulting lack of confidence in the U.S. economy, whether it's from a default or it's all this uncertainty around it. It causes investors to want to sell their U.S. Treasury bonds and it weakens really the dollar overall. So if there's a default, Treasury will have to figure out which bills it's going to pay with the money that it has available. They the Federal Reserve has said that one of the highest priorities is paying interest and in principal on those Treasury securities, but it's also been said that even if it's paid timely, that the rates on those Treasury securities will rise, and so that makes our debt more expensive because no one's going to want to buy it. Right. So kind of a trickle-down effect when you have a, a default and uh, can, can make things a lot more difficult for everybody. But let's do bring it back to our level. What does this mean for you and me, Suzanne? What does this mean uh, on a daily basis for our listeners in, in their individual lives? Yeah, so even if you don't own treasury securities, if the interest rates on those uh, increase substantially, interest rates across the economy is likely going to follow and that affects for most people like car loans and credit cards and mortgages and business investments and then other cost of borrowing and investment. And, and one area of concern is the balance sheets of banks that have a large holding in treasuries would decline as the, as the value of these treasuries drop. And so of course we've seen recent concerns in the banking industry and it's definitely an area that we want to remain stable um, because that could impact all of us as well. Right, okay. So a trickle down effect that we're all gonna feel, businesses will feel, and, and obviously never a good thing to be defaulting on national debt. Um, so what happened, though, with the debt limit in January of this year, earlier in 2023? I feel like there was a lot of news there. What, what, what went on? Well, we did hit the debt ceiling in January on January 19th, and that was without a deal. So when that happens, Treasury has the authority to implement what's known as extraordinary measures to prevent defaulting on its obligations they can take a form of suspending payments to some governmental employee savings programs, under investing in other government funds, delaying auctions of securities, and there's other things. 
I am not sure which all that, you know, what the extraordinary measures um, they took at this time, but um, they have been used in, you know, in previous negotiation stall, if you think back to 2011, 2013, but Congress has never failed to raise the ceiling before those extraordinary measures were depleted. And Treasury Secretary Yellen has warned that the extraordinary measures she's put in place could be exhausted by June 1. So that's coming up quite quickly. Yeah, so definitely. I mean, that's just around the corner and um, perhaps an unprecedented event happens there if the, that ceiling doesn't get increased um, and we move into these uh, or run out of these extraordinary measures. But what? let's tie this back to healthcare because I know uh, most of our audiences uh, employers, they're on here worrying about their group health plans and, and just healthcare generally, right? We've talked a lot of of uh, different aspects of the, our healthcare system in the United States. So, how does all of this impact healthcare? So, first, we're going to talk about prioritized payments by Treasury, and then some other impacts on healthcare. But as as a reminder, raising the debt limit does not mean that the federal government is allowed to spend more money than Congress had previously authorized to spend. But in this scenario, when Congress fails to raise the debt limit and, and the government doesn't have enough money to meet its current obligations, as we mentioned before, there, the amount of allowable spending would be limited to the cash that's on hand and incoming revenue. And so we don't know at this point what steps the government will take, but there could be steps such as prioritization of payments, as we mentioned before, or there could be payment delays or an automatic across the board payment reduction. And any of these options could impact payments for healthcare and retirement benefits like social security or Medicare, Medicaid, CHIP, veteran benefits, you know, and other programs. And you really have to think of our healthcare system as an ecosystem, including both your government programs and your private pay uh, plans. And so disruption in any portion of it can impact all portions of it. So if you have disruptions in government plans that can certainly impact the private sector, either by impacting the healthcare providers or by future cost shifting to the private market to make up for a provider shortfall. So, it, you know, overall, we just have to know that just because it says Medicare or Medicaid attached to it, it doesn't mean that it's not going to have an indirect impact on the private market. Um, but it also goes to other areas as well. When we talk about, uh, you know, a default and we look at, at hitting the debt ceiling, discussions also turn to limits on spending. Right. So thank you for that ecosystem description. I think that really helps describe what's going on here, right? We've, we feel like we're talking about one topic with the, the national debt, the debt ceiling, but really all of this can come back and, and impact our healthcare system. And we see that a lot where, uh, from the provider perspective, right? They've got to make their money. And so if they're getting cut on one end, they may be raising on the other. Uh, but um, I think anytime we're having uh, discussions about spending, that's going to be a natural outgrowth of hitting some type of ceiling, in this case, the debt ceiling. And to bring it back to that credit card analogy, if you're continually maxing out your credit cards, at some point you have to take a real hard look at cutting your spending. Well, that's true. And, and what we know so far is President Biden and Speaker McCarthy have ruled out changes to Medicare spending, as, you know, during their discussions over the debt limit. It doesn't mean it won't come up later, but it's possible still that there could be cuts to other federal health spending programs. And it leaves open the question of whether Medicaid, federal spending on Medicaid, the ACA premium tax credits or other health care programs could be targeted. We have seen, you know, you hear of the desire to have a clean 
debt ceiling increase. And, and certainly that's uh, one way to approach it, but we can see that most of the major deficit reduction agreements that have been made since the 1980s have been tied to a debt ceiling increase. So it's, it is somewhat normal course since the 1980s to tie the two together. Right. Okay, so what would be, in your view, the greatest concern for group health plans? And again, bringing it back to healthcare, bringing it back specifically within healthcare, this idea of employer-provided group health plans. Well, whenever, I'll speak to as if I was running a group health plan, my greatest concern is that whenever the government is looking for more funding or they're talking about cuts in spending, it seems like the focus turns to the tax exclusion that's related to employer-sponsored provided health insurance. And so, um, you know, we have mandatory spending, we have discretionary spending, and then we have tax exclusions. And the mandatory spending comprises the majority of federal spending on health programs. It's not subject to that annual appropriation vote by Congress. I mean, it, it can still be changed through some type of legislative vote, but, but generally mandatory spending includes nearly all of Medicare spending and federal spending on Medicaid and CHIP and the refundable portion of the health insurance premium tax credit for coverage through the ACA marketplace. The remaining 12% of that federal health spending is discretionary and it is subject to that annual appropriation process. And it covers things like the Veterans Hospital and spending with the CDC and the NIH and the FDA and so forth. So, um, you know, we've got those two and then we have, of course, the tax exclusion. Yeah, and the tax exclusion, I mean, we don't generally lump that in with spending, right? But it, it, it's an exclusion, meaning the government is not collecting the taxes on that. But that tax exclusion relates to employer-sponsored health insurance. And we kind of have two parts to that. The employer paid premiums for health insurance, they're exempt from federal income and payroll taxes. And then you have the amounts being paid by the plan that are not included in, in employees group uh, in their gross income. Also, you have the portion of premiums paid by employees. Those are usually paid pre-tax, meaning they're excluded from taxable income. We usually refer to that as the Section 125 or cafeteria plan exclusion. But that's an important tool for employers as they're encouraging employees and, and as, the, as our system is encouraging employers to offer group health plans. That's a huge part of this and a, and a really important tool to help employers get the best group health plans in front of their employees. Well, I, I agree. And that tax exclusion for the health employer-sponsored health insurance, it really shields workers from paying income or payroll tax on those benefits. And mm -hmm. so from a, an accounting perspective, the exclusion is a tax break and it reduces the tax liability of the workers who choose to enroll in employer-sponsored coverage. You've got those on one side that favor changing that exclusion. They say the employer-sponsored insurance costs the government an estimated $316 billion in income and payroll taxes in 2022, and they call it the largest tax expenditure. I think it's odd personally to describe money that's not that government never taxes and never spends as government spending, but that's how it is referred to. Um, I mean, the government is not subsidizing the workers enrolling in ESI, but now they're threatening to take away that tax break. Um, some have suggested changing it by including a cap or a dollar limit on the amount of the health insurance premiums that are excludable from taxable income and applying an index that determines how that cap might grow over time. So effectively, eventually eliminating that tax exclusion. 
it's also been talked about turning it into a tax credit. And those who argue for the tax credit claim that replacing the exclusion with a tax credit would equalize the benefit across taxpayers no matter what tax bracket they're in because a tax exemption or a tax break helps really those individuals in a higher income bracket than those in a lower income bracket. And so, you know, those are the various ways that um, people have talked about over the years changing that tax exemption. Um, it continues to come up. It doesn't um, fortunately, hasn't gotten full legs on both bipartisan and been able to make any uh, inroads yet, but it continues to come up and it's always a target, certainly when uh, discussions turn to finding additional funding for the government. Right. So we've heard this come up before. We've talked about it on past podcasts, and it's always out there in the political debate, just this idea of limiting or capping or, or otherwise uh, getting at that expenditure that uh, Congress views, you know, these the employer-sponsored group health coverage. It's also interesting to think about in the context of why our tax code is so complicated, right? We use our tax code in this country as a way of incentivizing behaviors and or disincentivizing behaviors. And, and we see that across all aspects of our life, not just uh, with the group health insurance, you know, you, you have tax breaks for mortgages and tax breaks for different things. Um, and so our tax code has just become really complicated and, and complex and nuanced. And this is the reason why is we use it as this incentivizing behavior. Um, so this is really helpful though. I, I love the discussion about this being an ecosystem. We feel like we're talking about something political, but really the trickle down uh, is impactful across all of our lives and, and particularly here for group health plans and employers. And so just any other thoughts, Suzanne, as we're, as we're wading through this governmental debate and obviously more to come. No, it's just that the government health programs are once again up for debate with this new round of deficit reduction um, discussions and inevitably puts, you know, healthcare in the crosshairs and, and, and goes back to that basic problem of of reductions in healthcare, government healthcare spending can encourage cost shifting from government to the private sector. And so it's something that we will watch and see how it unfolds and certainly be reporting on it in the future. Yes. Well, thank you so much, Suzanne. This has been very informative and interesting, and we'll continue to monitor this, talk about it on the podcast. We'll also include developments in our biweekly newsletter called Compliance Corner, which is available at nfp.com. And so uh, thanks again, Suzanne, and uh, thanks everybody for joining us as we like to say at the end of our podcast. That's a wrap. Thanks for joining. Thanks, y'all.